0: I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Today, unusually, I'm with two guests, uh, Tony Juniper, who's a very well-known environmental campaigner and has been for many years, and also Anne Michael, who is the head of WWF uh, which used to be known in my younger days as the World Wildlife Fund and then I think it became the World Wide Fund for Nature and now is just as with so many things known by these uh, three letters WWF so welcome to the two of you thank you I thought it would be an idea really to get a bit of background uh, from the two of you your roots and how you got involved in uh, environmental issues uh, Tony where, where do you come from
1: originally? Um, so I grew up in Oxford, and uh, my earliest memories are really about a fascination with, with the natural world, with birds, with plants, uh, with fish, with lizards, and snakes, and fossils, and all these things. They they really occupied my attention as a small child, and any more so as I grew older. And so I finished up um, being a biologist and studying zoology, and then went into the world of conservation uh, in the uh, early 1980s, uh, after I'd left university initially working with the wildlife trusts and from there um, really have, have, have spent the last uh, 35 years um, and more uh, and counting uh, on, on these subjects working with BirdLife International a very long period working with Friends of the Earth where I finished up as the director for a period that I spent some time helping uh, the Prince of Wales with some of his environmental activities and then Working with the University of Cambridge programme on sustainability, and then very recently just came back into the non governmental organisations as the campaigns director at WWF, um, which I'm delighted about. Brilliant. What about you, Anne?
2: Well, I grew up in Scotland, so quite a different background, and moved to Wales after I left university. Um, But again, I guess as a child, more generally enjoyed nature. My father was a keen. Walker and Gardner, and I think he gave all that, what's these pretty little yellow birds called, uh, to me, uh, which I think is is a fantastic thing to give your children. Um, But I didn't follow an academic route into that. I don't think it occurred to me I could get a job doing that sort of thing. Um, And I started out um, in management. I worked actually in the paper mills in Cardiff for quite a number of years, but then decided I really needed to do something more constructive with my interest in the environment and like Tony, by the late 1980s I was working then for a national park but then subsequently for a range of NGOs, getting more into the the campaigning end and kind of saying well we've got to do something about this, the world is not going the way it should be.
0: Okay, so Tony, um, one thing that always occurs to me um, when I think about this is that over the years and over the decades it may very well be the case that there has been an increased awareness of environmental matters and environmental concerns, and indeed that there have been uh, government policies enacted. Uh, and yet, has there really been much of a change in real terms, in terms both of um, the, uh, the, the, the things that have occurred as a consequence of um, various pieces of legislation, but also in the hearts and minds of people Uh, at the grassroots to change their lifestyles what's your perspective on that
1: well as as you can imagine it's it's quite a a complex arena ranging from very local issues and you know the protection of local parks right through to big global challenges like climate change and i i think you can you can you can see progress in in some areas but of course still major continuing challenges i think one thing we we could say is is that public opinion these days is more amenable to the kinds of things we want to do And so the recent shift in the uh, Westminster government's perspective on environmental issues, you can trace back to what they are picking up in their opinion polling as changes in public perception. So I I think the politics does follow the the public mood. And the public mood, despite all the things we've had recently, dominating headlines with recession and everything else, I think the environmental cause is still there with voters and, and the public. So that's good. If you look at the legislation that we've had enacted some of it has, has actually made quite a major difference so the uh, global level response to the depletion of ozone in the 1980s um, has led now to a phase out pretty much of all the substances that were causing that problem and the ozone layer should begin to recover um, on the climate change question obviously a big breakthrough in paris in 2015 at the global level and then here in the united kingdom we've had various legislation enacted in in wales scotland and england to uh, bring down emissions of greenhouse gases, and that's been pretty successful. So last year we got about a third of our electricity coming from renewables, which you know, 20 years ago people would have said is impossible. We do have some animals and plants um, showing some signs of stability, and one or two of the rarest kinds actually beginning to, to, to bottom out and to recover. But if you look at the overall trends on the state of the natural environment, it's pretty troubling, including here in Wales, where you still see a continuing decline in biological diversity, so wild animals and plants going down, and the whole range of factors behind that, especially the impacts of our farming systems, which, which is really at the front line of what we're now trying to do at WWF is to find ways in which we can make our food system more sustainable and, and therefore not only supporting people but also helping the recovery of animal and plant populations. So I, I suppose with that in mind, you know, we we've, we find that the agenda changes over time. You know, we've been obsessed with carbon and climate change for the last twenty years, and one of the things we now need to do is to make sure that we can balance that with a, a refocus on the natural environment, birds, bees, plants, animals, and to do something about the recovery of all of that.
0: In terms of individuals and what they need to do in terms of changing their lifestyles, one of the biggest issues, of course, is people driving cars. Mm. And... One of the biggest issues, and knows extremely well in Wales at the moment, relates mm. to whether there ought to be an M4 relief road mm. uh, this side of the, um, of the main seven uh, bridge. Yes. <laughs> and the thing is that um, a couple of years ago, um, the National Assembly passed the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which is meant to get mm. politicians and all kinds of policymakers mm. thinking about the future and what impact anything which they enact is going to have on it. So there does seem to be a bit of a mismatch between the aspiration to go down that particular route, and yet the Welsh Mm. Government is still firmly behind the idea Mm. of uh, driving a new motorway through Mm. uh, the Gwent Levels, which Mm. is a a lovely landscape, as I discovered when I had a tour around it about a month ago. Indeed. Um, So this is what I'm getting at, really, in terms of the fact that you, you can have politicians making uh, very good-sounding, progressive-sounding pronouncements. But when Uh, it actually comes to the crunch, um, sometimes what they do doesn't
1: match up to what they say. Well, I think this is really at the front line of the whole environmental idea, is how we begin to reflect these ecological uh, 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 ideas into the economic policy. And so at the moment, you find governments everywhere facing in two directions at once. They talk a good green talk and on the other side they continue with exactly the same kinds of environmentally damaging economic and infrastructure and agricultural policies that they've always had. And so this is the big message uh, that we have for the political world, is the need to integrate the environment into everything else. It's not something you can have on its own. It needs to be at the core of industrial strategy, of energy strategy, of economic growth strategy, of social policy. And until we do that, we're always going to have these unfortunate situations where we appear to be saying one thing and then doing the opposite. And so that's, that's the big job here. And certainly from what little I know, about the situation uh, with regards to that kind of infrastructure in Wales. One of the things I think that would be more positive from the point of view of the economic future of Wales, never mind the environment, would be to be investing that kind of money in rural broadband internet services for example and being able to connect people not by car but by modern electronic media to the world and also upgrading the rail infrastructure so that everybody's got access to that kind of convenient clean and hopefully affordable transport choice that can connect up communities um, as was the way we did this for 150 years until the invention of the mass transit by motor car and so you know maybe we need to be Revisiting some of the fundamentals of this, rather than trying to deal with traffic growth by building more roads, because we know from experience that doesn't work. All you do is attract more traffic to it. What do you think, Anne?
2: Well, I, and I think, as you are no doubt aware, we work very hard as WWF Cymru on that Wellbeing of Future Generations Act as a as a means to change the whole system of decision making, because that's actually what's needed here in order to save our environment. Um, Because business as usual, which is what's really happening with a lot of these decisions, is what got us here, and it's not going to get us out of that. Um, And I think we've done some work over the last year or so with the Welsh Government and uh, independently to look at how well are they implementing the Act and where are the gaps here. And I think we've got a couple of issues. One of those is really that, as yet, we haven't seen the environment becoming more prioritised in those decisions. I shouldn't say not at all, but it's very inconsistent. There are some very good policies that do it very well, and there are some where you think, well, nothing's changed here. Well, you haven't made any difference. So we've been having discussions and we've had some workshops with Welsh Government to look at. Well, why is that happening? Why is that inconsistency? Why are we getting some bits of government doing the right thing and some not taking it on board yet? And, I, and it is a process it's a major culture change process which obviously takes time but it re- needs real political drive to make that happen um, and I think it's not had as much push to deliver it I think it, it's one of those where we've passed this law, that's great we'll just implement it now in some vague sort of way whereas actually for any change management programme you really, really need to push it and to focus on it and I think that's That's where we're at now, is trying to push them to go ahead. And I think the other major frustration for us in that is what's worrying about this is a lack of understanding of the scale and the pace of change that's needed to deliver this. If we go on changing very slowly, like we have for the last 10 years, um, we will not have some of those wonderful uh, places and animals and plants in, in Wales. And you know recently we 've had lots of fuss and bother quite rightly about air quality, issues that have been on the agenda for twenty years, river pollution, same problem, and it 's what 's killing off those plants and animals and it 's not good for humans either, so actually now getting some more focus on actually the environment isn 't this thing over there; it has a major impact on people and the economy as well as everything else and just starting to see maybe that's starting yeah. to actually get some traction in decision-making.
0: So what would you like to see happen, Tony?
1: Well, so, so I think Anne's last point there about the extent to which you know we've underestimated the importance of the environment to people. This is really quite a key point to, to be reflected in, in discussion, in politics and in, in public understanding. Because we've gone along for many, many years, and the M4 relief road is a very good example of this whereby we've said the overriding uh, task is to increase the size of the economy, to increase our competitiveness, to generate jobs and to cut consumer prices. And all of that is what government is all about. And environmental damage is unfortunately a consequence of this. It's regrettable, but it's inevitable. Collateral damage. Exactly. It's collateral damage. We'll try and minimise it, but actually we have to live with that. And what we've not understood is that as we damage the environment, we're damaging our own well-being. Because we all need air, water and food, and all of those things are dependent upon healthy natural systems. And if, for example, in Wales, you want to have um, an economy that's sustainable into the future, think about some of the sectors that are dependent on a natural environment that's healthy. Farming. a um, big sector in Wales, 80 to 88% of the land under agriculture, that will only persist so long as the land is in good shape. Um, the um, fishing industry not so big in Wales anymore but around the coasts of Britain we you know have healthy seas hopefully producing fish long into the future so long as we look after them and then of course tourism who wants to visit a country that is degraded its wildlife is gone it's polluted and the beaches are not pleasant to sit on and Wales still has a a big interest in, in tourism and so those are just three places where you can see where investing in the growth of the environment if you can put it like that, and the growth of the quality of the environment is a very sensible way of looking at the economic future. And it's kind of flipping it round and saying, actually, the restoration of the natural environment is actually a sound economic strategy rather than something that's getting in the way of growth which is kind of where the mindset is slightly stuck at the moment with politicians feeling as though you know the environment and looking after it somehow is the enemy uh, of prosperity which is which is what some of the speeches give you the impression that they're they're thinking so that's a big shift in, in perception and again at WWF one of the things we've got on our uh, radar is one of the big jobs we need to do is, 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 to, is to bring that wider understanding and actually the Relief Road and the Future Generations Act are a really good example of of where the old thinking still lives.
0: And of course there are other countries uh, like I think to a degree Spain Mm. uh, which has made a lot of uh, it's manufactured a lot of the uh, wind turbines which Mm. are used in Wales for example. And also I think Scotland is a lot further ahead isn't it in terms of uh, environmental clean energy. Um, So what do you think the Welsh Government really needs to do um, in practical terms to get on uh, a level playing field with Scotland for example?
1: Well I I think it's a a question of joining some dots. And and so in Scotland, uh, the uh, approach to clean energy, it's been aggressively championed from the top of government, and that has led to lots of jobs and inward investment into that sector, into Scotland. Wales could do the same, still quite a large amount of coal being burnt here, What about moving towards sustainable renewable energy as as, as a growth sector, not simply something which is about an environmental policy, but something that's going to help the economy. I think the uh, food side here is, is particularly um, important. Wales is, is known quite rightly as a beautiful green country and that brand could be used to produce very high quality food brands that could travel the world. Um, not industrial farming, but the kind of farming that's all about quality and environmental protection and sustainability, that too could be generating a great many jobs. And, of course, the beautiful environment here, if it was restored, it would bring even more tourists than it already does. Again, potentially a growth sector. And then, of course, there's high-tech manufacturing, thinking about the future and the kinds of uh, cars and appliances we'll be using. Can they be brought into Wales uh, by adopting high standards here that are going to attract those kinds of investments? Probably the answer is yes. So a clean, green economy, certainly our analysis at WWF tells us is the right kind of approach we should be thinking about across the UK post-Brexit and Wales, obviously, a part of that. You know, Do we want to adopt the low standards that some people were arguing was the reason for leaving the European Union, get rid of that European red tape, let's do free trade deals? That's one version of the future. Another is to be putting in place the high standards and the ambition for the kind of clean, green economy that is going to be the norm in the 21st century Are we going to be at the lead of that, or are we going to be at the back of the queue? And if you look at what the Danish and the Spanish did in terms of getting their domestic renewable energy industries going back in the 80s, they're now exporting to the world. Are we going to be doing that? Uh, That's the big question, I think, that that we can now answer as as we prepare to lead the EU. The problem is with uh,
0: Brexit that um, it does act as a possible break on any progressive developments, doesn't it? Um, It does. You know, the difficulty could be that... uh, if we want to have free trade deals with uh, other countries, uh, we don't have the negotiating power on our own to be able to push through decent deals. And this is, of course, one of the big concerns about free trade deal with the United States, isn't it? There's coronated chicken and uh,
1: them getting access to our health service. Exactly. And events last week kind of underline the extent to which we can automatically assume that the United States is going to be a very a strong advocate for free trade into the future with these um, recent protectionist measures to to, uh, limit the import of European steel. So we're entering quite choppy waters as we leave the European Union and what looked like it was a very straightforward idea that we leave this particular trading block and then do lots of trading deals elsewhere is not as straightforward as some people might have suggested. But also, and as you're suggesting, Martin, you know there are big implications there for environmental policy and certainly some of the key proponents of leaving the European Union were predicating their argument on the idea that we adopt lower standards in order to get more commerce. And so um, that may uh, or may not be correct, but one of the things that we should... Um, be wary of is whether actually that makes us less wealthy in the long run because if you look at what high environmental standards have done over the years is to attract inward investment to high technology economies that are being driven in part by environmental policy and so you get one version of events coming from that side but actually there's a completely different story that's not been told very thoroughly during this discussion about the European Union, about how high environmental standards attract investment, drive innovation and create jobs. And that's the future that we would like to embrace rather than the one which is about casting the environmental ambition out of the window in order to just get as much trade as possible, which as I say may not happen anyway if if past events are any guide to the future.
0: Well, I remember back uh, to the late 80s and early 90s at a time when actually I was working up in the northeast of England. Um, There was huge controversy at that time because it was as a consequence of uh, a European Commission directive that the local recently privatised water company, Northumbrian Water, was having to stop dumping sewage in the North Sea. Mm -hmm. And it was only because Mm of the European... Union, exactly that that actually stopped right uh, and at that time uh, actually there were some rather uh Dodgy players from the United States who are making some strange proposals about mm. toxic waste incinerators mm. in the northeast of England, um, mixing mm. the sewage with mm. uh, chemical uh, yeah. waste, uh, which actually yeah. got knocked on the head yeah. uh, following a big public inquiry. Mm. But the danger is that we're going to be heading in that kind of direction,
1: isn't That's it? That's the danger. And so, Anne and I, and our colleagues across uh, WWF in, in in the UK, um, in the different countries are trying to get in place the kinds of uh, standards and, and governance that would make sure that we don't head back in that direction. And so this is quite a dangerous moment because we've had um, commitments from bits of government saying that you know, we will keep the European level um, legislation, but then we are leaving the union which presently gives the enforcement to those standards. And so at the moment, we have some very weak proposals in the Westminster government context, at least, uh, suggesting that we effectively go very far backwards in terms of the level of of, um, enforcement and access to justice that the citizens of of England, at least, would have in being able to hold the government to account. And so there's really quite a big gap here, a big grey area now opening up in terms of whether we take over the principles from the European Union, the precautionary principle, the polluter pays principle, amongst others, and then whether we have the kind of structures that can enforce the law. Because at the moment, the proposal is that we do away with all of that by leaving the EU, and then we put in place a a weak watchdog, um, uh, use use the term loosely, with no teeth, uh, which um, basically uh, issues advisory notices to offenders, um, rather than taking them to task with fines, so this is um, this is a big question mark right there. And you know, the, the the memories that some of us have on paddling on beaches as a child, I remember very well. The smell of sewage was more overwhelming than the smell of the sea, and for very good reasons, because we were putting the sewage right there into the water. And we could go back to that uh, if we lose the level of protections that we currently enjoy from from the European Union. What degree of engagement have you had with the UK government about these
0: sorts of issues?
1: Um, it's been um, it's been pretty um, frequent and uh, uh, quite kind of close in, in in terms of the Westminster context. I know that Anne will have been having conversations with ministers here in, in the Welsh context as well, and our colleagues in Scotland similarly. And uh, the uh, the the impression we get in England, in particular is the extent to which government now is facing in two directions at once, and it rather goes back to what we said earlier on about the case of the road and the Future Generations Act. So in the Westminster situation at the moment, we have some ministers, and Michael Gove is one of them, saying that we should have a green Brexit, we should have high standards, and we should approach the future with strong ambitions for for the environment. And then at the same time, we have Number 10 Downing Street and the Treasury and the Department of Transport saying that we shouldn't have strong ambitions for the environment or strong enforcement because that will get in the way of us doing trade deals and attracting investment and economic growth and everything else. So it's exactly the same thing. It's, it's there alive and well in pretty much all um, arms of public debate. And the question is, are we going to be an environmental leader or are we going to go backwards? And I think in the end, you know, the voters... Um, who are looking at the, um, you know, the platforms and the manifestos of politicians need to play close interest in this because this is really, literally, a choice about the future of our country. One of the issues,
0: of course, um, in the UK generally, is that we have a first past the post election system, which means that uh, the political party which um, is particularly um, committed to Uh, green issues, uh, the Green Party, and Mm -hmm. I know that you've had involvement with the Green Party in the past, uh, (coughs) Tony, Mm -hmm. um, has got uh, quite marginal representation. Mm -hmm. Um, Caroline Lucas, of course, Mm -hmm. is the only Green MP. Mm -hmm. She represents a constituency in Brighton Mm -hmm. uh, and is very energetic Mm -hmm. and was when she was a member of the European Parliament Mm -hmm. as well. But there's not much that, uh, that one MP can do on their own, which is why I suppose it's obvious that you need to have alliances with other parties. Um, but the other parties tend to play hot and cold, don't they, when it comes to them? They
1: They dip in and dip out. As you say, you know the the the, the um, experience that I had, and certainly the Green Party's view on on this is is that the first past the post system is is hostile to anything which which is new an insurgent and it really plays to the strengths of the existing uh, main parties and you know election after election shows us that and the Green Party sometimes will poll a respectable uh, number of votes which is not reflected in the representation then that's achieved in certainly in the Westminster Assembly and so I think my calculations after the last general election in twenty. Uh, 17 when actually the Green vote was down a little bit we should still have had 25 MPs had that vote been allocated in a way that then turned into uh, numbers of representatives and so we're, we're far from having a system which is fair and you know the the parties which are most against moving towards a proportional system of course are the ones who benefit from it and if the Green Party had 25 MPs what more could be done well, then I think you start to build a critical mass, and I think if you had twenty-five and you began to to make the kind of impact that you could with that little core, then you could start to build that towards a hundred, and then who knows what happens.
0: Anne, I know that you um, don't want to get involved in the sort of nitty-gritty politics of it in that sense, from a party political point of view, but do you think that the um, arrival of the assembly in Wales, what I mean, coming up to twenty years ago now? has actually improved a perception of environmental issues in wales or or has it been a sort of manifestation of slow motion politics as uh, is often said and nothing much has really been achieved
2: Mm. i think that's an interesting question i mean i i think it's because of the difference in system i think it's enabled a different kind of politics at least until very recently uh, because you don't get that uh, you get much more representation of the different views um and there are more deals done there are more negotiations you know it's very rare that you have a sufficient majority to operate without some some agreement so there's always room uh, for that for that to have an impact on the environment i think we have had some good examples in the past of the outcome of that and i think you know indeed even things like our environment act are a a bit of a testimony to the fact that there wasn't a vocal opposition let's say from the Conservative Party in wales um they're they're not saying quite the same things as their counterparts in in the u k and you know at worst they abstain from few, from some things like the future generations act, but they don't they're not trying to vote those down in quite the same way, so there's a slightly different tone that's a bit warmer to environmental issues i don 't think it means. We've done that much better in delivery yet. Um, and that's the implementation point about... We've got some, some really good framework legislation. Um, but if you take um, the example you were talking about, the watchdog for replacing the, the, when we leave the EU, um, you know, we tried to make some amendments to the continuity Bill that the Welsh Government was keen on. Uh, and uh, they actually made some commitments to legislate for that watchdog and for those principles in Wales instead of changing their continuity bill. We now need to see that deliver, because maybe we can do in Wales better than is the arguments in London are, are making happen. And, you know, that is, that's the value of having quite environmentally friendly opposition, I think, in Wales. I think there's a bit more of a consensus around the environment.
0: So how optimistic are you uh, yourself uh, about brexit and what uh, comes after that in into from an environmental perspective
2: um, I think for me the the Welsh government is making the right noises I mean and they're working in in a new way in terms of stakeholder roundtables and engagement about trying to come up with new solutions and I think the solutions that are being proposed in those discussions with the backing of farming unions and others is a different kind of future where there is a broader set of Payments, if you like, for public goods, not just for food production, not just for owning land or, or whatever, but actually for producing some of those other things that, that we want, the flood prevention schemes, the, the carbon capture and storage, all sorts of things that you're, you're getting from, um, from different sorts of land management, for example. Um, I think my concern is that that big-picture trade stuff, what UK is negotiating may make it very difficult to deliver that in reality in a small country like Wales. But I think it's, it's really important for UK um, politics, if you like, to have those voices in Scotland and Wales that do not consent to the path that um, you know, perhaps Treasury wants to take, take the UK. Um, having those voices very loud and clear, which I think they've been trying to be in both Scotland and Wales, mm. Um, I think is really important. Otherwise, we might well be sunk uh, by the business-as-usual politicians.
0: difficulty as well, perhaps, is that um, uh, when it came to the crunch, the Welsh Government sort of dipped out of the opposition to the so-called power grab, um, which means Indeed. that there are these frameworks that are going to be worked out at a UK level, um, essentially by the UK Government. So. What degree of input is the Welsh Government and, for that matter, the Scottish Government going to have? Assuming that <coughs> the Scottish Government's attempt to defy this is defeated at the Supreme Court, as I think you know is uh, is uh, likely. Um, so that that is a problem, isn't
2: it? Yeah, I mean, those going back to those round tables, we know those discussions have been going on for quite some time and they are pretty intense now, um, over the next couple of months, about what is what are those common frameworks what should that watchdog be how will those things coordinate how will they operate and again I think it's really important that we're pushing their voice to be really firm on the high standards end of this because I think I think genuinely my what I hear from Welsh government is that they they do agree with Tony that actually their the future niche for them is around this sustainable brand and making that real and delivering a different uh, economy, both rural economy and, and others in the future um, and uh, you know, I'd give a lot to know exactly what that deal actually is in practice mm. behind the scenes but you know those discussions are going on and have been going on for some time um, and we are desperately trying to um, make sure we, we uh, push them along in the direction we think they should be going we're not hearing anything that says they're not but you know, all of that's happening behind closed doors as you know mm.
0: So, um, Tony, um, on the issue of climate change now, do you think individuals have woken up to the need to change their lifestyles mm. and how radical a change in people's lifestyles is necessary mm. in order to combat climate
1: change? Mm. I think so. I, th- I think uh, whereas uh, you know 20 years ago we, many people might have regarded climate change as some kind of future theoretical thing that may happen... I think that the things that we experience now in our day-to-day lives, whether it be heat waves or flash flooding or things we see on the television with glaciers collapsing into the ocean, you know, it it obviously is now happening. And so I think that's changed public understanding of it as something that we need to deal with now rather than at some point in an unspecified future. And I think amongst young people in particular, they're really very interested in doing something about it because for the obvious fact that they're going to be the ones who are going to see most of it because they're going to be around for longer. And so I, I do think people are beginning to, to change their behaviour somewhat. And so certainly um, amongst the, well, the youngsters I speak to, um, you know, they, they take the idea of, of meat eating very seriously. And, and so, you know, we saw some science published last week revealing how the food choices we make really is the biggest single thing we, we can uh, change. And so very often it's about, you know, the lights and the energy efficiency of our homes and everything else, or the cars we're driving. These are two big things, but bigger still is the food system. And so um, a whole range of questions there, including the greenhouse gas emissions and the climate change impact, coming from the livestock sector in different ways. Uh, so from the deforestation uh, that's being caused to make way for soya bean fields in South America, for those for them to be crushed and turned into animal feed for pigs and chickens, including um, you know, in Europe, those connections are being made now by people and I do think there is uh, a sense of, of personal responsibility amongst many people. Now, on that, you know, one of the things I've learnt over the years is that you don't need everybody to change their behaviour for big change to come. And I remember in the very early days working at Friends of the Earth in the early 1990s how we were regarded as a fringe outfit because we used to collect... Uh, waste for recycling so paper and cans and bottles and people thought this was a bit strange and yet now we have doorstep recycling and people do this as a matter of of cultural kind of norm and so I think some of these things on the climate side will follow in a similar way and so the electric vehicles for example again a few pioneers were driving those a few years ago and they seemed a bit strange coming across into Wales at the weekend via road and stopping at service stations uh, on the M42 coming across towards the Welsh border and there's a bank of electric cars plugged in on the motorway at the services there uh, charging up and just a couple of years ago you wouldn't have seen that and so I think, you know, you can detect little things going on where people are beginning to to put two and two together they are doing their recycling they are some people changing their diet they are when they're looking at a new vehicle going towards... an electric one, for example, they're walking, they're cycling, so I I do think these things matter because um, in the end, you know, the politics and the big picture, the global agreements and the things like the Climate Change Act, you know, they are only possible so long as public opinion permits them, and so these little changes, I I think they, they add up to something much bigger in the end, and so I certainly encourage everybody just to do their little bit, even if it's a small bit, because everybody notices, and then that's how you get big change in the end. In the early years of the National Assembly there was um, a
0: a woman who was the agricultural minister Uh, who actually was a vegetarian and that created huge controversy (laughs) and it became known. Um, So when you're saying that people should change their diet isn't Mm. that going to cause a bit of alarm in the minds of
1: farmers who are selling beef and lamb? Yes it it would do Um, but I think you know that there's, there's a bigger picture to be painted here and it's about the transition from the unsustainable society we live in at the moment where we've got climate change and species disappearing and natural resources being depleted and air and water pollution, moving from that into something else. And I think what we have to do is think through how we can bring everybody to see the benefits for them. And I think in agricultural policy, one of the big opportunities we've got at the moment, and at WWF we're not saying everyone should go vegetarian or vegan, far from it. Uh, The livestock is obviously a part of of the farmed economy at the moment and could be part of a future sustainable farming economy, but it would need to be done in a different way in order to bring back the wildlife and cut down the greenhouse gas emissions. And this is why there's such a huge opportunity with farming policy post-Brexit and how we incentivise farmers to do something other than what they've been doing up until now, which is to produce as much as possible, as cheaply, in inverted commas, as possible, when in fact what we've discovered is it's not cheap at all in terms of damage to soils, water quality, pollution of the atmosphere. Let's have a more joined up approach that might lead to less meat being produced, but it would be better quality meat, and at the same time it would be uh, coming with the restoration of the natural environment. Now, if we can find the economic factors that would enable farmers to do that, and we think we can do it, then hopefully everyone can be comfortable about the transition, because it will bring benefits all round.
0: Now, as we're recording this, um, the announcement hasn't been made about whether the uh, Swansea Tidal Lagoons project will go ahead, Mm -hmm. but uh, all of the indications are that the government is going to uh, rule it out. How bad a decision do you think that is?
1: So the um, shift towards renewable energy is going to require us to adopt um, several new technologies and so wind we've already now got at some scale, um, including offshore, we're beginning to build up some capacity on the solar side and some of the technologies that we still need to look at include different kinds of tidal technologies and wave power. And tidal and wave around the British coast you would expect to be potentially quite considerable. But they would have to be done in a way that was compatible with the recovery and protection of the natural environment. And so those tidal lagoons, certainly the Swansea one, um, is something that I have supported um, in the past when I was speaking to the designers of that a few years ago before I joined WWF. And now speaking to my colleagues here, we think that actually this is something that should be tried in order to be able to understand the impacts of that kind of technology on the natural environment. So we would hope that Swansea would go ahead with the right kind of uh, government backing for it in order to be able to get the kind of information we need to understand how best to do more of that potentially in the future. And so like all startups, you know, it's going to require a bit of slack to be able to get it right. And so this is the first of its kind in this country, pretty much the first of its kind in the world, actually. And again, if we're going to be a world leader in going to this clean, green future, then we need government to be assisting industrial entrepreneurs in being able to get it right so that we can do more of it with the confidence that we're getting the very best outcome for the environment, and not just for carbon, but for wildlife and the natural environment too. When we were setting this
0: uh, podcast up, uh, I had communication with the uh, press officer for WWF Cymru and um, um, sort of mooted the idea of mentioning uh, nuclear power. Mm. But he said this is something that we don't campaign on at the moment. And I mean, what I've detected in recent years is that there has been, um, shall we say, a more equivocal attitude towards mm. nuclear power adopted by environmentalists because at one time it would be something mm. that people would be campaigning uh, yes. there will be no question yes. about that but yes. more recently people like George Monbiot have yeah. uh, expressed <coughs> well, to a degree yeah. support for well, nuclear
1: power quite strong support yeah. um, and, and some others too and um, you're right. The, the, there's been less focus on it, and I, I think part of the reason for that was because we kind of thought, um, in the environmental community, things have changed more recently. But we kind of thought the debate had been done uh, because the British government did say we're not going to support any new nuclear stations. We're going to go towards renewables and energy efficiency and everything else. Uh, but then it did come back again, and I think even then, though, um, you know, the impression has been um, one of, well, is it really happening? And so, you know, we were told we'd be cooking our Christmas turkeys with electricity from Hinckley Sea in Christmas 2017. We weren't. And one wonders if we ever will, um, not only because of some of the issues around waste management and some of the connections that historically have been made between civilian nuclear power and nuclear weapons. All of these things were um, issues at one time or other, but now I think the... Uh, agenda has been superseded by the economics of it and so the way in which there has been this incredibly rapid drop in the price of electricity generated by offshore wind, onshore wind, uh, solar, you know this wasn't really expected and it has completely recast the entire position now and so you know if government is anything it needs to be economically rational And under these circumstances, why would you back a technology that will have to continue to pay for for 50 years when right now and next year and the year after we can see the price of renewables dropping very quickly? And we've also now had the national grid telling us that actually we can deal with these intermittent and flexible and distributed sources through different uh, ways of managing the electricity supply. So some of the arguments about nuclear in the past Um, about the need to have a base load, that seems to have been uh, dismissed largely by the people now who run the electricity grid and they should know what they're talking about. And then if you do want to go to renewables, one of the things that might stop you actually is a very big centralised power source that's receiving public subsidy that has to be kept running in order to make it economically viable, thereby knocking out wind and solar. So if you want to go towards renewables and low carbon, it may be that nuclear is not your best option in terms of backing that up and indeed from the point of view of price which has to be the ultimate political issue for for the decision makers who are interested in going on the low carbon journey then perhaps we we should be putting our weight behind those things that we know work and which we can do at scale with with, um, hopefully environmental benefit never mind um, uh, environmentally benign and offshore wind, onshore wind, solar um, some hydro, um, some some geothermal, some sustainable biomass and maybe some tidal and certainly some some wave power eventually are the kinds of things we might wish to look at alongside getting energy storage technologies up and running and doing that in tandem with the electrification of our transport network which could go in tandem very nicely with that. Now you've worked
0: closely with uh, the Prince of Wales um, mm. uh, both I think at, the, at Trends of the Earth and also more mm. recently. Yes. Um, Uh, How authentic a supporter of the environment is he? And then also there are those who say uh, that uh, it's constitutionally wrong for somebody in his position to be
1: making a stand on such issues. Yes. So so how authentic an environmentalist is he? I I can think of very few more authentic environmentalists, to be honest with you. And actually yesterday evening I was just thinking um, about some key anniversaries that will take place later this year. Um, which arguably could mark the 50th anniversary of the modern environmental movement. And one of those moments was the publication of Earthrise, that photograph taken from Apollo 8 in uh, December 1968 uh, from the far side of the moon. And you know, this inspired people to think about the fragility and the isolation of Earth um, from space. That very same month, um, a young environmentalist made a speech. Actually, it was um, at a conference concerning the future of the countryside in Wales, and that environmentalist, of course, was the Prince of Wales. And I had cause to look at that speech again recently. And all the things in there that we now think are so important were being flagged by, by the young prince at the age of 20. And he has been a consistent champion of those issues and many others ever since. And has kept up with the agenda on climate change, on the tropical rainforest, on everything else. And has remained a, a very active and very effective champion of all of these causes. I had the privilege um, to work with him at his International Sustainability Unit and to write a couple of books with him as well, actually, and got to know an extremely thoughtful, knowledgeable and very effective environmentalist. And, uh, you know, we should be very grateful that he has been doing all of these things. And when it comes to the constitutional role of the monarchy, well, you know, it it was often pointed out to me that there is no job description for the Prince of Wales. Um, It's a title. uh, But if you look at what... Uh, the modern uh, monarchy might be um, uh, regarded as, as as being its function. There are people who were writing about this in the 19th century and they appear to be the most recent commentators who left us with any kind of sense of what the job description is and uh, one of the points is to warn of danger. This is what the, um, the constitutional experts of the Victorian era said the monarch should do, is to warn of danger and have the right to be heard in being able to raise the alarm about the dangers the countries face, country faces. Now, if you think about that fragile blue dot rising over the dead surface of the moon 50 years ago, and you think about what we now know in terms of the mass extinction, the catastrophic climate change, the depletion of natural resources, and all the implications of that for global security, stability and food security and water security, then you can think of no more fitting subjects upon which you might warn of danger. And so I think if anyone would like to have a discussion about the constitutional ins and outs of whether the Prince of Wales should be talking about a sustainable future, I'd be delighted to to debate with them. So you would expect when he
0: eventually gets on the throne um, to continue uh, his environmental espousal of um, issues, would you?
1: Well, I think as monarch, there's even a less clear job description. And so I think we have to wait and see. Um, but the, certainly the man I know is absolutely passionate. And the effect he's had on the global stage has been huge. And the reasons for that are not only his passion, but the fact that he transparently is there for no other reason than for the right reasons. He doesn't need to be elected. He's not after the money. And so why does he do this? And the reason he does it is because he cares. And so that's why he's been so effective. Tony Juniper and Michael, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Martin.
0: Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.